is the Thoughts from a Page podcast. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. I can be found on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts from a Page. And if you have personalized book questions or feedback on my podcast, I can be reached at Cindy H. Burnett at att.net. Today, I am interviewing Kristen Harmel, a former reporter for People Magazine. Kristen has been writing professionally since the age of 16, when she began her career as a sports writer, covering Major League Baseball and NHL hockey for a local magazine in Tampa Bay, Florida. She became a reporter for People Magazine while still in college and spent more than a decade working for the publication. She now lives in Orlando with her husband and young son and writes a book a year for Gallery Books. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, Kristen. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you. How how about you? I'm doing well, too, and I'm super excited to talk with you about the Book of Lost Names. I sat down to read it, and I ended up reading it in a day. I stayed up till 1 a.m. in the morning, turning the last pages to get to the end. I just, one of the best books I've read this year. Thank you so much. What a nice thing to say. I'm so touched by that. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. And on top of that, you hit the New York Times, so that had to be exciting. It was. I mean, gosh, I've been doing this for so many years. My first book, I wrote it in 2004 and it came out in 2006. So, I mean, it's it's been a long career and this was my first New York Times bestseller. So it was, uh, I mean, who, who knew that I just had to have a pandemic happen for it to finally <laughs> happen for me? Um, how did you hear? Like, how did all that come about for you? We thought there was a chance. I had seen my sales numbers coming in that week and everything kind of looked good, but you you never know. I mean, it's just sort of this magical, mystical brew of who knows what. Um, My literary agent called me at about five o'clock the Wednesday that the list comes out and said, hello, is this New York Times bestselling author Kristen Harmel? And I was like, ah! Like jump all over the house yelling, I would have. Yeah, it was nice. Another author friend of mine, how sweet is this? My friend, Christy Woodson Harvey, had sent me champagne for my launch day. Uh, so like about a week a week prior and said, this is the champagne you're going to open when you hit the New York Times bestseller list. So I, I did indeed. I had Christy champagne. I love that. And I love Christy. So I can see her doing that. <laughs> Why don't you tell me a little bit about the book of lost names for those that haven't read it yet? Sure. So the Book of Lost Names is the story of a female forger in World War II named Ava, who stumbles into the French resistance mostly by accident and winds up helping save the lives of hundreds of children. So along with another forger named Remy, she begins encoding the real names of the children she saves in a book she eventually refers to as the Book of Lost Names, hence the title. And at the end of the war, when both the book and Remy vanish, she worries that those names and the other secrets that the book holds are lost forever. But then in 2005, she's working at a library in Florida and she's sorting returned books. She's 86 now and she sees a picture of the Book of Lost Names in an article in the New York Times about the Nazi looting of books, which was a real thing that happened, especially toward the end of the war. So as the story unfolds in the past, we also see Ava in the present trying to summon the courage to travel to Berlin to finally see if the Book of Lost Names holds this last secret she's been waiting for for the last six decades. So where did you come up with the idea for this? I mean, there's several components, the forging, the book itself. Where did these ideas come from? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So this is my fifth World War II novel, my fourth novel set in World War II France specifically. And it was while researching my previous two, The Winemaker's Wife and The Room on Rue Amelie, which both concern the French resistance, at least in some way, um, that I began to think about the forgers who were making the forged documents that some of my characters have to use in both of the books. So I, you know, for years I've been writing about the French resistance and writing about, you know, so-and-so escaped with this forged document. And it suddenly occurred to me, well, wait, like, what's the story of these people who are forging the documents? How do they get into it? How do you learn to be a forger? Who, you know, who were these people? And so I began looking into it. And what I found was fascinating. It was a lot of young people involved in it, which I thought was really cool. And most of them had no training in anything related to that. They just had a talent or an instinct or, you know, found their way in in some way. And there are a lot of women doing that work too, which is, which is incredible. And I mean, literally they saved hundreds of thousands of lives by giving people false identities that they could escape with. But I had all of that in mind and I knew it would make a good core for a book, but something was still missing until my literary agent, Holly Root, sent me one day, I think it was January of 2019, sent me an article from the New York Times about the search to return Nazi looted books to their rightful owners, which as you might imagine is kind of difficult because, you know, these books were stolen 75 years ago and a lot of them were not well marked. It was kind of hard to tell where they came from. And the minute I read that, I knew like this was the story that was going to wrap around the story to create this book. And uh, combined with my own love of books and libraries and reading, everything just sort of fit together and clicked and, and became the Book of Lost Names. Well, I was just completely intrigued with the idea of these children having to have their names changed, obviously, to get smuggled out of France, but how you came up with the idea of the book of lost names itself, the physical book, and then kind of the idea of keeping up with their names. Like, where did that particular part of the storyline come from? Is it just something you came up with yourself? It was. I thought as I was reading about the forgers, I thought a lot about, you know, who were these people that they're forging identities for? To some extent, it was Jewish adults who were fleeing. Some of them were allied pilots. Some of them were members of the French resistance who needed to go underground or needed to have plausible identity for something they were planning to undermine the Germans. But a lot of the people they were forging the identities for were children, and in many cases, young children. And that really kind of stuck with me because if you forge an identity document for, or, you know, forge a baptismal certificate or whatever for, say, a two-year-old, who's to say that a two-year-old who received forged papers in 1942 is going to remember who they really are in 1944? So I, I really began to think about that. And what is identity? Is your identity just your name? Or what are the things that make you, you? And that's kind of part of what the book explores. But as far as preserving the actual names, the real names of these children. This idea of identities being created and erased is something that is very important to the main character, Ava, who herself fears being erased. She's a young Jewish woman from Paris who's fleeing, and her mother in particular really worries that by assimilating as sort of a cover identity, she's losing the pieces that make her her. So it really just became this book about identity and what creates identity. And I wanted her to have a way to record these names somehow. And so I wound up having her work with another forger, Remy, who I mentioned, to encode them in just a nondescript book that would have 
been very common to find on the shelves of a rural library in France, which is where they do a lot of their forgery work. And in order to do that encoding, I actually purchased myself a real 1732 religious text. And I used that, a French religious text, and I used that as the basis um, for the actual Book of Lost Names. And then for the code itself, I used a code called the Fibonacci sequence as the basis of that code. And the Fibonacci sequence was something I was very obsessed with when I was about eight or nine. I would lie in bed at night and count the numbers of the Fibonacci sequence in my head until I fell asleep. So who knew that when I was eight or nine years old. I was actually practicing for the book I would write when I was about 40. (laughs) Well, I majored in math, so I was actually very excited to see the math components of the story. And I just loved the the idea of, of identity and losing the identity, trying to retain it. Yeah, thank you. It's interesting because for me, I feel like it's a little bit of an exploration of myself too, because I grew up without knowing. So I'm, I'm Catholic and my mom's side of the family is Catholic and that's how we were raised. But it, it turns out that my dad's side of the family is Jewish and it was just never something that we grew up with because his father was agnostic and my dad was not raised with much religion. And it was just never really a piece of my life when I was a child. And it was something I really learned about when I was in my early 20s. So, I, you know, I think part of that question about identity is how does that shape me? I mean, it, this this part of myself that was not part of my upbringing, but that's part of my blood. Like, you know, it, it's almost, it's not the same, but it's kind of like the children whose identities have been changed. Like how much of their identity is carried by their name and by the things they're told about themselves and how much of it is what they're born with, even if they don't know. No, I agree completely. And it's certainly very thought provoking and interesting. And I just hadn't seen a storyline like yours before and just thought it was completely intriguing and thought about it so much since then. And then the other part of it that I was totally unfamiliar with was all the extra documents that people were supposed to be carrying. Like I knew they had to have their ID and whatever else, but it was, that was something I learned a lot about in your book is that you also had to have all sorts of other documents showing who you were. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I think that forged documents were so common during the war, you know, because so many people were trying to change who they were to escape, that the Germans and the French police kind of got wise to it. So in order to really have a plausible fake identity, you had to have random things like a ticket for riding your bicycle without the headlight on or library card or things like that, that you wouldn't necessarily think that a forger would think to forge, but in the good forgery bureaus, they did. It was kind of a whole suite of documents. And in particular for children, it was really important to forge a baptismal certificate. If they were Jewish children, obviously being passed off as Christian or Catholic children, that was one way to sort of prove definitively, well, of course my child's been baptized. So that was interesting to me to find out in the research too. The other thing that was interesting to me, and if this is a spoiler, tell me, but was that when they were helping people get across the border into Switzerland, that once they got across, the kids just went on and the adults turned around to do it again. Well, that was um, that was something very common in how the resistance networks worked because the adults who were shepherding the children to to the border were generally part of these networks as opposed to people who were trying to escape themselves. And so they did the trips again and again and again because they knew 
all the secrets to doing that. Like they knew the people to trust along the way. They knew the schedules of the guards along the border. They they knew that you had to hide in this ditch and then that ditch and then dart across this hole in the barbed wire fence or, you know, whatever, all, all of those things. And so they were really people working for the resistance entirely selflessly uh, to save lives. I mean, it, it's, it's incredible when you think about it because these were not people who were in the military. They were not people with any kind of formal training. They were ordinary people who just rose up and um, did something extraordinary and selfless and amazing. I always do find that almost mind-boggling. There were so many people who did that. I mean, it wasn't like the resistance was a few people. I mean, they were just, you know, hundreds and hundreds and many lost their lives and they still were willing to try to make sure France or whichever country they were working in stayed free. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's interesting. The more I have kind of um, dug into this kind of writing, because like I mentioned, this is not my first book about the French resistance. Um, The more I've kind of done the research and talked to people, it feels like everyone has a story in France in particular about a member of their family or a friend or a neighbor who did something during the war to undermine the Germans, even if it was something small. Um, Like I remember going last year or two years ago to Champagne, France, to research my last book, The Winemaker's Wife. And people there were just telling me, I mean, these little stories, like so-and-so was a mail carrier. And when she would see a letter that was supposed to go to the Germans, she just wouldn't deliver it. And that was her way of resisting. And it was just so funny though. I mean, not funny, but just kind of interesting to think that some people were doing huge things and some people were saying, you know, this is something small I can do in my own corner of the world that will make a difference. And I think that's like just kind of a crucial thing to remember is that we don't all need a huge platform or a huge voice to bring about change. I mean, we can just do small things for the good of mankind and those small things add up to the big things. Tell me a little bit more about your research. I mean, we talked a little bit and you have the book that you kind of used as the actual book of lost names, but what else did you do to research? So... I did a ton of reading, a ton of listening to just firsthand accounts. A lot of Holocaust museums have great resources online that are just accounts of people who were there, you know, video interviews or just transcribed interviews that you can that you can watch or read. So those things were very helpful. There were two books in particular that were really helpful to me. One was called A Forger's Life, which was about a man named Adolfo Kaminsky, who was a very prolific forger in Paris. And the other one was called A Good Place to Hide, which was about a resistance network that helped to shepherd children and and bring them to the Swiss border. But one of the people in that book, a real life person, was a man named Oscar Rosowski, who had been a very successful, very young, self-taught forger in the unoccupied zone of France. So those were really helpful. The forgery techniques that I read about there really kind of informed the writing of this book. But on top of that, you know, reading about these techniques, I felt like I needed something more to fully understand how they did what they did. The books I was reading or the interviews I was watching would mention, well, of course, you had to have a specific kind of paper and it was hard to find that kind of paper. And so we had to have the paper air dropped in from uh 
that was made in, you know, free Algeria or something, which was so specific. But I thought, what, I don't understand. Like what, how was the paper different? Like, what did you need? And so I set out to get my hands on some of these documents and I wound up getting a Nazi issued travel permit from Paris in December of 1940. So it was stamped by the Nazis, filled out by the Germans in German. And this is something that would have been very common to forge because you needed a document like that to travel freely around France. So I have a real one of those from December of 1940. I have several copies of the Journal Officiel, which is the official government document of France. It records things like births, not, not, well, not, not births, actually, naturalizations, marriages, divorces, things like that, like anything that has to do with official government business. And I have a bunch of those from 1944. That was a very common resource for forgers to steal identities. Because you couldn't just say, well, of course, this is Cindy Burnett from Paris. And don't bother her because of course she's Cindy Burnett from Paris. You had to actually have a real person who your identity matched up to in case somebody looked further and and wanted to look into your records. And I also have a real French baptismal certificate from 1942. Having those firsthand documents was really helpful, not just in kind of finally putting together the missing pieces of wrapping my head around that, but also in terms of just having a physical, tangible connection to the past that I was writing about. It was very interesting for me to learn about too. I mean, and that's honestly, it's one of my favorite things about writing historical fiction is finding out stuff that's really cool and being able to share it with readers in a way that's hopefully entertaining. No, I agree completely. I think that's why historical fiction resonates so much with me because I love learning something. Like now I feel like that was not something, I mean, I did know they had to have specific paper and that as the war went on, that that got trickier, but I didn't know about the extraneous documents and I didn't know about it being the paper being airdropped in. The other thing that I thought was interesting was that people were still working to get those books returned and and why as the war went like toward the end of the war why they were looting more you know there was just kind of a lot of a lot of interesting things that were going on Yeah. And that is fascinating to me. And I I know I included this in the author's note, but one of the things that really struck me in that New York Times article that I mentioned, and then in a book called The Book Thieves, not to be be confused with the fiction novel, The Book Thief, but there is a book that's a nonfiction book called The Book Thieves that's about the Nazi looting of books, which that's a fascinating research document too, or, or resource for me. One of the things that I found out was that most German libraries, if not all German libraries, have at least a portion of their collection still to this day in 2020 that consists of books that were stolen 75 years ago. And I found that fascinating. And particularly the statistic that in Berlin's largest library, the Central Library of Berlin, three and a half million book collection, and over a million of those books are books that were looted during World War II. It's it's mind-boggling when you think about that. One single library has over a million stolen books 75 years after they were stolen. And I, I don't know, that that thought just really kind of moved me and captured my imagination and underscored to me the fact that books are more than just words on a page. They have so much intangible value. I mean, can you imagine getting a book 75 years later that had belonged to your grandfather or your great-grandfather? who had been arrested in France in, you know, in 1942, say, uh, and, had, and had perished somewhere in a concentration camp. 75, 80 years later, someone returns a book that was his and says, this is yours, I want to return it to you. Think how much that would mean to you and how much you would treasure that. It just, books carry so much more than the actual stories written on their pages. 
I agree with that completely. But I also, on the flip side, find that so disheartening that it's been this many years yeah. and that those books have still not been returned. You know, you, I, I just think yeah. that is horrible. Well, you know, there are researchers working tirelessly to, to write that wrong now, but I think what they're up against, it's just impossible. I mean, some of some of what they have has probably very good records, but I mean, some of it, they might know who it belongs to, but maybe there's not a descendant to pass it along to. A lot of these books that were stolen were stolen from families that were just wiped out and annihilated. I mean, which is, that's sad too, that that this idea that these books will never find their way back home because there is no home for them. Uh, and, you know, again, that's just part of books carrying their own story. That, that just the idea of that's very compelling to me. Then you think, well, maybe they could donate it to a Holocaust museum or, yeah, you know, some, I don't know. There's just something that it would seem like maybe it would be a better home yeah. than in a library in Berlin. The other thing that was your description, and I'm going to probably not say it right, but the concentration camp outside of Paris, is it Drancy? I mean, that's how I say it. It's probably not the correct way to say it with the French accent. Yes. <laughs> but your depiction of that, I mean, I just felt like I was there and that, uh, did you have to research that a lot? That was something I had never really, I mean, I knew it existed and I knew what had happened in the roundup, but I did not, had not really read about the actual camp itself. Yeah, you know, that was something that I had touched on in my 2012 novel, The Sweetness of Forgetting, which involves that big roundup in July of 1942, the Valdiv roundup, it's called. The majority of people who were rounded up were first taken to a uh, cycling stadium called the Valdiv and held there in very inhumane conditions. But then I knew they had been taken, many of them had been taken to this detention center, which was sort of a, a final stop before they were put on a train and taken east. And in order to write this book, I felt like I wanted to do that justice. And that's something that there's a lot of information to be found on. So it was an interesting thing to research because I wanted to be able to describe not just what it felt like to be there, but I wanted to know what it smelled like and like, where were the guards and how were the buildings laid out? And it's interesting when you specifically go looking for information like that, how hard it can be to find. But I, I feel like I did find it and I, I hope I did that location and its terrible legacy justice. I definitely felt like I had been transported there. I had not really read much about actually getting to the next stop and then what it yeah. was like to be there. And then also that exception, the Argentinian exception, that was fascinating to me. That was something I'd never heard about before. I hadn't either, and I can't remember which book. It was one, It was part of the research materials about forgery that I came across that as a very brief mention because it was actually the way that a real-life forger managed to get his... I can't remember whether it was his father or mother. I think it was his... It might have even been several members of his family out of detention. And so that was actually something that was used by a real life forger because it was an exception. It was the Argentinian government. If you were, even if you were Jewish, if you were an, uh, an Argentine citizen, you were in theory supposed to be let out. And, and it did work sometimes, which is very interesting. That is very interesting. Yeah. Do you have a favorite of the books you've written as we're talking about them all? You know, they all sound like they've got similar ideas, but obviously very different storylines too. Are yeah. there, is there one that stays with you more than the rest? 
It's almost always the most recent one I've written because I feel like with each book, I hopefully continue to grow and develop as a writer. So I am prouder of this book, The Book of Lost Names, than I am of any of the previous books, just because I feel like I took a little bit of a step forward as an author, uh, as a writer. Aside from that, probably the one that holds a special place in my heart is The Sweetness of Forgetting, my 2012 novel, because it was my first World War II novel. It was a novel I wanted to write for many years, and I kind of had it in my heart even when I was writing lighter women's fiction. I knew I wanted to pivot and do something like that. And it also involves not just World War II, but involves a relationship between a granddaughter and a grandmother as the grandmother is slipping away with dementia. And that is a very personal book to me because I wrote it while my own grandmother had dementia and while we were losing her. And um, she's gone now. She died several years ago. But that book always feels like a snapshot in time that that reminds me of of the love between us. So I think it'll always feel like a very personal book to me. Oh, I love that, that you kind of captured something that you were going through that was very personal and now you have it for all time. I like that. Thanks. (laughs) So what's the best thing about being a writer? Gosh, there are so many good things. It's just such a neat job. I mean, you get to research things and find out cool facts and cool information. You get to share that with readers. You get to hopefully inspire people if, if you're doing it right and if you're touching people, hopefully reaching people the right way. Um, and the relationships that I build with other writers, that is wonderful. And it is something that has become even more important to me in the last couple of years, in, in particular this year. Those friendships, which probably would not have come about if I wasn't in this career field, have really meant a lot to me and, and really continue to sustain me. Well, and you have developed a really cool thing with some fellow writers or female writers on yeah. uh, Facebook called Friends in Fiction. You want to tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So Friends in Fiction is a weekly Facebook live show that we do. We're also going to be launching a podcast soon that kind of goes hand in hand with that. But it's called Friends in Fiction. It's every Wednesday night at seven o'clock Eastern, six o'clock Central. And it's me, Mary Kay Andrews, Mary Alice Monroe, Patty Callahan Henry, and Christy Woodson Harvey, who are four writers I've always, you know, that I've known for a long time and have read for a long time, but they have become in these last six months or so, uh, four of my absolute dearest, closest friends of the heart. Like I just know they're always going to be my friends. But we started this in the beginning of April because we were concerned that we, you know, we all had book tours that had been canceled and we were concerned about reaching our readers, but also about supporting booksellers because bookstores rely on these author tours. And I mean, it's not, obviously it's not the only way people are coming in the door of bookstores, but you know, it's an important component of being a bookseller, I think, is having these big book signing events. And we were concerned about these bookstores that were having to close their doors due to the pandemic. And we thought, well, how can we help? And this was an idea we had. And we thought, you know, maybe if we do this once a week through the end of May, and we each week we support a different independent bookseller and suggest that people shop there and give them in, an incentive to do so. Maybe that'll help. We thought we'd have maybe a few hundred followers. We thought we'd make a little bit of a difference. We thought we'd do it for seven weeks. And here we are uh, six months later, or f- I guess five months later, we started at the beginning of April and we have no plans to stop. We're already scheduling out through next June and July. Like that's, and, and I mean, I can't ever imagine us not doing this. And we've gone from, you know, just a few hundred people in our Facebook group to almost 18,000 now. It's been so wonderful and such a great 
way to talk to other writers and to give readers really cool behind the scenes access. And at the end of the day, we hope it just feels to people like they're joining us for our weekly happy hour because that's in essence what it is. Christy had added me pretty early on. So I did not realize that it got into 18,000 people. That's just amazing. But I love the events. When I can tune in, I do. And I just love all the book discussions on there. It's one of my favorite Facebook groups. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? I am. I have a book coming out next July and we just came up with a title. Finally, we've been going back and forth for months and nothing felt right, but I believe it's going to be called The Forest of Vanishing Stars, um, which I'm so excited about. I, I love I love that title. <laughs> it took a lot, oh, a lot to get there, but I, I like it a lot. And it is also set in World War II and it kind of has the same heart as this book does. So if you like that kind of story of someone ordinary rising up to do extraordinary things. I think you'll like this next one too, but it's not in France. It's in World War II Poland and in the depths of the forests of World War II Poland. So it's a little bit of a departure for me, but still, I think with that same familiar heart to it. Oh, it sounds very good. I'm already looking forward to it. Thank you. Well, I have loved talking with you and hearing a lot more about the Book of Lost Names and some of you know what went into it for you. And as we wrap up, I'd love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. Oh my gosh. I, you know, one of the great things you asked me earlier, what I, um, what I like about being a writer. And I also should have mentioned that as a writer, you have to read a lot. And it's, I just love to read. One of the great things about being an author is that you get a lot of early reads because people are hoping for blurbs, you know, those little short recommendations on the cover of a book or the inside or back flap of a book. And so a few early reads I've gotten recently are Surviving Savannah by Patty Callahan Henry, who's one of the other friends and fiction authors. I just finished her book about a, less than a week ago. It won't be out till March, but it's incredible. It is about a shipwreck off the coast, uh, off the Atlantic coast, that it's a ship that went down that had a lot of sort of the high society of Savannah on it in the 1800s. And I have been saying to people that if you're interested in the Titanic, this is, I mean, this is like going to be your book of 2021. So that one's fabulous. I loved Fiona Davis's The Lions of Fifth Avenue. I actually read it almost a year ago maybe like eight or nine months ago. And I blurbed it, but I've read it again because Fiona and I have done a bunch of events together. But it's a great book. It's also about a love of books and about libraries and librarians. So it has that in common with the Book of Lost Names. And of course, Fiona was the August book club pick for Good Morning America, which is amazing. And she is a newly minted New York Times bestseller also, which is very cool. I'm very happy for her. I also just read a book that I don't think comes out till April. It's called Lost in Paris. And that one has a little bit of a World War II element. Uh, No, I'm sorry, not World War II. It has a tiny bit of World War II, but the past is more centered on like the 1920s in Paris, the time of like Hemingway and Fitzgerald. And it's really cool. And then there's a very kind of light modern day storyline that has a little bit of hidden depth. So I really like that. It's called Lost in Paris and it's by Elizabeth Thompson. And finally, I mentioned that Britt Bennett is going to be one of our guests on Friends in Fiction in the next couple of months. And I read read The Vanishing Half right when it came out and I loved it, but I have just started rereading it because I'm going to be hosting her on Friends in Fiction. We take turns hosting and I'm going to be hosting her episode and I wanted to have it fresh in my mind um, as I'm writing my questions for her. So I'm rereading that and then I'm planning on diving into her earlier book, which is called The Mothers. 
That's what I was just going to ask you if you'd read The Mothers, because I've read them both and I love them. Definitely The Mothers has stayed with me ever since I read it. Um, I can't wait to read it. Yeah, it looks amazing. So good. And then I think Fiona's book is the number one named book that I've had on the podcast when I ask people for reading recommendations. It comes up all the time, which is kind of fun. And I had just seen the cover reveal for Patty Callahan's book. And that one sounds amazing. So I had tried to get myself on the list for that. And then I hopefully I'll get to interview her as it gets closer into time for the podcast. Thank you so much for your time and talking about it all. I just thoroughly enjoyed it and I really appreciate your coming to talk with me. Oh, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure chatting with you and I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Kristen's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing, and I hope to see you next time. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes.